Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, as Larry mentioned, uh, we had a really excellent conference here this weekend, yesterday morning and Friday night, Porn Kills Conference. This was our fifth annual Porn Kills Conference, actually, and um, I got to say, I think this one was maybe the best one yet. I mean, these speakers were outstanding, and uh, it seems like every year we learn more about this subject. I got to be honest and say, I don't know why there aren't more people at this conference every year, but there is an opportunity for you to come again. God willing, we're going to do it again, November 2018. You can mark it on your calendar right now, first weekend of November 2018. You have a year's notice, and uh, hopefully... Uh, all of you will be there, but uh, it was generally well attended and just an outstanding conference, so I, I just can't uh, speak highly enough of the good job that the speakers did. A couple Sundays ago, I mentioned to you guys about some books that we have available, and <clears throat> I told you about this book, The Reformation, How a Monk and a Mallet Changed the World, and uh, both of them were purchased right away, so I was really happy to see that. Just want to let you know we have two more of those available now, a book that I would highly recommend giving you a brief overview of the Reformation. Not very long, pretty easy read. And there's another book that's equally as good, maybe even a, a little better. I finished this just a little while ago, The Unquenchable Flame by a guy named Michael Reeves. Also, just a good overview of the Reformation. We have two of these for sale also on our book table. One of the reasons I'm mentioning this is because um, we actually have two kind of book areas. We have a book store, which is kind of behind the welcome booth. Uh, that's where the newer books are. And then up front, we have a little table where we have discounted books. And the deal is that if you buy a new book from the bookstore, you can take one of the discounted books for free. And I'm letting you know this because this is the last Sunday we'll have those discounted books available. So grab a Reformation book, uh, pay for that, and uh, get yourself a free discounted book. By the way, we don't make any money on these books. They are presented to you at a discounted rate. We just value reading and learning and want to get good books into your hands. So take a look at the bookstore before you leave today. Okay, open your Bibles, please, <clears throat> to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Hebrews, chapter 7. Um, <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one underneath a chair in front of you. Somewhere not too far away, page 582 is where you'll find this passage, Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 23 to 28. Uh, the year was 1505. Martin Luther, 21 years old, was walking back from law school, no, walking back from his parents' house to law school, when he came upon a, a thunderstorm, violent thunderstorm, uh, maybe something like we're supposed to see today sometime. I understand the forecast is for some pretty heavy thunderstorms. So here's Luther. He's on foot by himself, gets caught in this storm, and nearby a lightning bolt strikes the ground. And you've heard me tell you about Luther and how this was a man who was uh, very hypersensitive to his own sin. He had a great fear of God. He saw God as this terrible person in, who he couldn't face and into, uh, who couldn't enter into his presence. And here this lightning bolt strikes, and Luther is thinking to himself, this is it. 
I'm going to die. I'm about to meet this God that I fear so much. And Luther falls to the ground, and he cries out. He yells out, and he says this, Saint Anne, help me. I will become a monk. It's a very famous story of how Luther left law school and ended up pursuing vocational ministry, entered the monastery, and eventually went on to theological training. But the big question that ought to enter your mind is why is Martin Luther calling on St. Anne? Why in that desperate situation is he not calling on God? Why is he not calling to Jesus? I mean, one thing that we can be sure about is that the one to whom you call when you're in trouble, when you're in crisis, when you're scared to death, the name that you invoke, the one to whom you appeal says a whole lot about who you are and what you really believe. In those times of crisis, who you really are is what's going to come out of your heart. Out of your heart, And we learn something here uh, about Luther and what he believed at that time. So uh, we're going through a sermon series on the Reformation here. We're calling it Reformation 500 because this year is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. This past Tuesday actually was the official, official Reformation Day. But the Reformation officially began August, uh, excuse me, October 31st. 1517. And out of the Reformation came um, battle cries or slogans that are sometimes called the solas, S-O-L-A-S, solas, that's Latin for alone. And there's five battle cries that have come out of the Reformation. And here's where we've been so far in this sermon series. We first learned about Scripture alone as a battle cry of the Reformation, that Scripture is our final authority, and it shares that authority with no creed and no confession and no pope. Above every other church authority comes the authority of Scripture. And then we learned about the slogan, grace alone, and there we learned about the source of our salvation. It originates in the grace of God. It originates in his heart of grace. It originates in something in him, not something in us. The gospel comes to us by grace alone. And then we heard about faith alone. That was last Sunday. Faith alone refers to the means by which we receive this salvation that God wants to give us by grace. We don't receive salvation through our good works or by observing the sacraments. Salvation is received by faith alone, quite apart from works. Grace alone, faith alone, kind of tied together, pretty similar. Grace alone would be the source. Faith alone is the means. And today, we're talking about the slogan, Christ alone, which is what makes the whole gospel possible. This is the foundation this is the ground of our salvation. And what this tells us is that in those times of desperation and in those times of terror, when you call out, the good news today is that there is somebody there. There is somebody listening. There is somebody longing to come to your aid. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what we're going to learn about here in Hebrews chapter 7. So if you please stand for the reading of God's word. 
Hebrews 7, 23 through 28, uh, Hebrews was uh, written to a group of primarily Jewish Christians who were beginning to have doubts about their faith. They were persecuted. They weren't quite so sure. They wanted to keep following this Jesus. They were thinking about reverting back to the Old Testament ways. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, don't do that because Jesus is so much better than the Old Testament system and so much better than the high priests that you have relied on in the past. So here we are, Hebrews 7, 23 to 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, referring to Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word, but we are in need of your spirit to help us to understand. So spirit, come now and enable us to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Christ alone. This is what we're going to think about. In what ways did the reformers believe that Christ alone was an important thing for us to, uh, to, to cling to? And the first point is this. Christ alone is our perfect example. It is Christ alone is, is the only perfect model, the only truly holy, perfect person. And the reason why this is an important thing for us to understand is because of something that maybe some of you have been kind of wondering. I haven't had anybody say this to me, but it could be that you've been wondering during this Reformation series, why are you making such a big deal out of Martin Luther? Why are you making such a big deal out of a mere man? a sinner, someone who's not our savior. Um, you know, we don't call ourselves Lutherans here. I mean, there is a Lutheran denomination. I mean, some people you know, object to that idea of naming a denomination out of, uh, after a person. I mean, many of us call ourselves Calvinists, and so some people object to that too. Why are you naming yourself after a, a mere man, a mere person? And that's a good question. And I, I want to make it clear to you here that I, I don't want to try to cover up the weaknesses of these men, of these reformers. And so uh, let me just share with you that there is a lot in the life of Martin Luther that is not to be honored. Um, here's a book that Martin Luther wrote on the Jews and their lies. Written late in his life, a few years before he died, and in this book, in this writing, he urged that uh, the houses of Jews should be burned. He urged that their synagogues should be destroyed. 
later on, hundreds of years later, the Nazis took this into their hands and read it and found encouragement for some of the actions that they portrayed. I think Luther probably would have been horrified at that, but nonetheless, they found support for that. I mean, this is the truth, friends, about Martin Luther. And people have done a lot of work trying to figure out how to, how to explain this. How do we rationalize this? I heard one person say, well, it was late in Luther's life and he was very sick and he just wasn't feeling very good. That's not convincing to me. Not, not a persuasive argument. How do we respond to this? As Protestants who hold up Martin Luther as, as kind of a hero, I, I, I think we should just say right off the bat, Call it what it is. It's an inexcusable sin. It's absolutely indefensible. It is shameful what Martin Luther has said in this book about the Jews. But let's not try to rationalize it or cover it up or pretend it's something different than it is. But does this mean that we can't talk about Martin Luther and respect him and, and talk about him? Let, let, let me just offer you a few things about how we should respond to this. One, Think of it like this. Isn't it true that when we look through the scriptures, we always see God using sinful people to accomplish his purposes? That's, that's always what we find. I mean, we find a lot of people in the Bible who are quite disappointing. I mean, Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Peter was in a position where he decided that he wasn't going to hang out with the Gentiles because he was afraid of what his fellow Jews would say. And Paul had to go and call him out for Peter's own kind of display of racism. And yet Peter went on to write two books of the New Testament. See, God always uses sinful people to accomplish his purposes because the Bible is not about adoring and venerating people. It's about a great and mighty God who by his grace has chosen to use people to accomplish his purposes. It's all about God and his grace. It's all about God and his work. It's not about men and women. So we shouldn't really be surprised then that God would use a man like Martin Luther with all of his flaws and all of his sin. But another thing I would say to this is, is this. It's really not the word of Martin Luther that we are so impressed with or that we are uh, uh, seeking to, to exalt and honor here. It's simply the gospel that God used Martin Luther to recover. So we honor Martin Luther to the degree that he proclaims to us what the Bible actually says and what the gospel actually proclaims, which is something at the time that was virtually lost in that day and age. And God used Luther to recover that. But it's not because that came from Luther's idea. Luther didn't invent the gospel. The gospel comes from God. And we worship him and proclaim him as the good God who, in his mercy, would use a man like Luther to recover the gospel. But another thing to say would be this. You know who the first person would be to admit his utter, total sinfulness? It'd be Martin Luther. In fact, one of his favorite descriptions for himself was stupid clod. That's how Luther regarded himself. He knew he was a sinner. You, you, you've gathered that. You've heard that during this series. Um, 
he knew better than anybody that he needed the blood of Jesus Christ to cover his sins. And the blood of Jesus is fully sufficient to cover the sins of even a book like this. So um, we can respect our heroes. We, we can honor them, but we always need to keep them in their place as sinful people uh, who are always going to disappoint. But wh what a refreshing contrast is Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, look what it says here in this text about Jesus in verse 26. He was indeed, excuse me, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, again, referring to Jesus, and look at this description. He's holy. He's, he's set apart. He's, he's different. He's a man, but he's different. He's holy. He is innocent. He's never done anything wrong. He's never sinned. It tells us later in chapter 4, or earlier in chapter 4, that Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. He's totally innocent. Never committed a sin in thought, word, or deed. Totally pure. He's unstained. Probably a reference to the way he is um, uh, ceremonial, ceremonially clean in terms of his observance of the Old Testament. He's separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, having completed the work that the Father gave to him. He could be separated away from humanity and then exalted in his ascension to the Father because of his perfections. Look down to verse 28. What the writer's doing here is contrasting Jesus with the Old Testament priests. And so here we learn that the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. All the high priests, all the priests of the Old Testament were plagued by weakness. All the servants of the church throughout history are plagued by weakness. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, this is a reference probably to Psalm 110, which looks forward to uh, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We have this perfect son. Now, this says made perfect. Don't get too hung up on that. That doesn't mean that Jesus was imperfect at some time and then later became perfect. It just means that that Jesus had to fulfill his entire mission given to him by the Father. That required his perfect life, his death on a cross, his resurrection, and then his ascension to the Father. And once that was all completed, then it was demonstrated that he was perfect, that he had done everything required of him, and that he is fully sufficient to stand as not only our Savior, but as our example. That's Jesus. Jesus is such a refreshing contrast to Martin Luther and to every other man, woman, and child who has lived in obedience to him. Friends, I don't want to, I don't want to sound, I don't want to make you cynical about people, but people are going to disappoint you. That they're always going to disappoint you. Your, your, your heroes the more you know them, you'll find that they're maybe not quite as worth the adoration that you had given them. Whoever it is, you're going to read about Abraham Lincoln, read about Martin Luther King. You're going to find things about them that you probably don't like so much. Your theological heroes, whether it be Luther or Calvin or Tim Keller or John Piper, 
you're going to find things about them that disappoint you. Your entertainment heroes, like Kevin Spacey, you're going to find out that they're going to disappoint you. The politician you voted for, your pastors, are going to disappoint you. Get to know me, you'll be disappointed. Your parents, your friends, your siblings, your spouse. At some point, they're going to disappoint you. They're all probably worthy of your respect, your, your admiration. But only Jesus is our perfect example. Only him. And we shouldn't be distracted from that clear truth that we find here in Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, as some of you in this congregation know about um, a man named Petrus Rukas who was former pastor of Westminster Presbyterian uh, here in Muncie, the church that planted New Life about 25 years ago. Um, Petrus left Westminster and pastored in Lexington, Kentucky for a while, and I know there are people in this congregation who used to sit under Petrus's preaching, uh, a man who was a tremendous blessing to, to many, many people, myself included. I went to Westminster when I was in college. I sat under Petrus's preaching. Petrus went to Lexington, as I said, and um, in uh, 2004, I think it was, committed suicide. And that ended up being, as you might imagine, an enormous and devastating event for those who knew him, for us to, to, to process. I mean, there's nobody. I mean, if I had to prepare a list of people who I thought might do that, Petrus would have been at the very bottom of that list. And so I remember talking to um, Petrus's associate pastor down in, in Lexington shortly after that happened. And um, he was just talking to me about how he was processing this. And, and I've just never forgotten this. He, he said to me, he said, you know, I, I used to say, as I was inviting people to come to our church, I used to say, you've got to come and hear this man. You've got to come hear Petrus. You've you got to come and hear him. And he says, I don't do that anymore. I just say, you got to come and hear about Jesus. I want you to come and worship with us at our church. And he said that because he, he didn't want anybody to put too high of an expectation on a mere man. Because the best of men are men at best. And Petrus was a great man. But a sinful man and a fallen man. Like me, like Pastor Brian, and like Martin Luther. Only Christ, only Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So the second thing is this. Christ alone is our sufficient mediator. Our sufficient mediator. What, what is a mediator? Well, a mediator is just simply one who comes in between two parties to kind of bring them together. That's what a mediator does. So, for instance, let's say you wanted to go um, talk to the President of the United States. I know to many of you that seems like a very unappealing prospect, but uh, let's just say you wanted to go talk to the President. Let me tell you, you're not just going to go to the White House, open the front door, walk up the stairs, and walk in the door and see the president. 
That's not going to happen. In order for that to happen, if it were possible, you would need a mediator. You would need somebody to come and, and greet you and lead you up there and open the door and present you to the president. Someone to come in between you and the president. Now, if that's true for the president of the United States, how much more true is that for a holy God and sinful people? We need a mediator to come between a holy God and us so that we can be presented to him. Now, that brings us back to this question that I asked at the start of the message. Martin Luther, lightning strikes, he calls out to Saint Anne. Now, why did he do that? Why did he call out to Saint Anne? Well, here's the reason. Because in Luther's mind, Jesus seemed like this holy, angry, intimidating, unapproachable judge. In Luther's mind, he was not someone to bother. He was not someone to approach. And so he didn't think to call out to Jesus. And this was a very common way of thinking among uh, Catholics during this time, early 1500s. And so uh, what many of them did is, is they reasoned like this. They thought, well, since Jesus is too holy for me to come into his presence, maybe we could come into his mother's presence. Because after all, you know, mothers tend to be uh, you know, a little more gentle and, and, and kind, a little more approachable. That, that was the reasoning. So let's go to Mary. What we'll plead to Mary. Well, over the years, a similar kind of perspective on Mary began to develop in the Catholic Church, that she too was this kind of holy person who was unapproachable. And so like here's a, a picture of Mary uh, from about this time, you know, angels worshiping her in the heavens with this scepter in her hand, um, giving off this impression of this unapproachable holy person. And so people began to think, well, I, I don't think I can even go into Mary's presence. But keeping with that same thinking about a mother maybe being a little more gentle and approachable, people thought, well, how about we go to Mary's mother? And Mary's mother was St. Anne. And so she was also the patron saint of minors, and that was Martin Luther's father's occupation. And so probably somebody that their family appealed to often. But that's why Luther is calling out to St. Anne. She seems less terrifying. She seems more approachable. And during that time, the cult of St. Anne was very prevalent. Now, let's contrast that again with what we see in this text in Hebrews chapter 7. Look what it says in verse 25 about Jesus. It says this. <clears throat> he is able to save to the uttermost. I mean, to save as absolutely persuasively and convincingly as you can imagine, those who draw near to God through him. You see that? Through him. That's a reference to a mediator. People wanting access to God, if you go through Jesus, he can open the way for you because he always lives to make intercession for them. Always lives to mediate. Intercession, mediation, pretty much the same term. Jesus always lives to inter intercede for us. How different is that from the perspective that Luther had? As this holy person who had no time for people. No, this is what Jesus does. This is what he's doing right now at this very moment. 
He's interceding for you and for me who trust in him. I mean, have you ever wondered about that? What is Jesus doing now? I mean, he's resurrected from the dead at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing? This verse tells you. He's your advocate. He's pleading your case. He's mediating on your behalf. He's ushering you into the presence of a holy God. That's what he's doing. That's what he's always doing. And that's what Luther didn't know. But that's what you guys know because of Hebrews 7. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Now we might ask, well, why is it that Jesus is so sufficient to act in this particular way? Well, we can see this. Christ alone is our sufficient mediator because as we compare him to the Old Testament priest, particularly in verse 27, notice what it says here. Contrast between the two. First of all, Old Testament priests were sinful. Jesus was not. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins. That's referring to the need of the high priest. He had to offer sacrifices for, for his own transgressions and sins. But Jesus doesn't have to do that. We've already established that. Perfect, blameless, sinless. But here's another thing. Old Testament priests had to offer, make offerings daily. See that verse 27? He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. Every single day, these priests had to bring these animals, sacrifices, to the temple. But does Jesus need to do that? No. Um, because it says at the end of verse 27, because Jesus did this once for all. J Jesus needs, just needs to offer up one sacrifice, and it's done. That's why the whole ceremonial system in the Old Testament is no longer binding upon us, because the one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is sufficient. And then lastly, we see the Old Testament priests had to offer animals. So these daily sacrifices, we, we don't see this specifically mentioned here, but go to the Old Testament, you'll see rams and sheep, animals were offered up daily. But no, Jesus doesn't need to do that. Why? Look at the end of verse 27, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The perfect, blameless, holy Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, offered up himself. No Old Testament priest can keep up with that. That's what makes him a sufficient mediator. He's sinless. He offered up one sufficient sacrifice, and it was something that was much better than animals. Here's, here's what this tells us, friends. Jesus is the only mediator. Jesus is the only way to enter into the presence of God. There is no other mediator. There is no other path. There is no other way. There is no other means. You hear that a lot. Jesus is the only way to the Father. We read that. This explains why that's true. You can't say this about any other religious leader. You can't say this about Muhammad. You can't say this about Joseph Smith. You can't say this about Buddha. You can't say this about Moses. You can only say this about Jesus. The only sufficient mediator. There is no other way. There is no other way into the presence of the Father than through Jesus. Now, I know that raises lots of questions. You can talk about that in your life groups. <laughs> but it's the truth. Some people say, oh, there's only one way. That doesn't seem fair. You ought to be thankful that, there's, that there, there is one way. 
Be thankful that there's one way and not no way. Because God would have been perfectly just to provide, he doesn't have to offer up a mediator like this for us, but he did. One way is better than no way. What is your responsibility in response to this? Verse verse 25, who is he talking about here? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, look, those who draw near to God through him. Those who draw near. Your responsibility, as Jesus is the sufficient mediator who has done everything else necessary in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension to the Father, your responsibility is pretty simple. Draw near. Approach him. Call out to him. Pray to him. Talk to him. Plead with him. Just like Luther did. Luther was calling out to St. Anne. That That accomplishes nothing. But calling out to Jesus accomplishes a lot. You can call out to him with that besetting sin that you can't seem to get over and you feel so guilty about. Draw near to your mediator in regard to that. When you're alone on a Friday night, when you get that cancer diagnosis, when life makes no sense to you, when you're not sure you can go on, when you're just sick and tired of it, you have a mediator longing to come to your aid, longing to help you if you'll draw near to him. Christ is our sufficient mediator. Uh, A couple passages here establishing this. There's one mediator between God and men. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Third thing, Christ alone, (coughs) Christ alone, is our hope beyond the grave. Christ alone is our hope beyond the grave. Now, one of the, one of the, the issues that the reformers were very concerned about is what's called the cult of the saints that was practiced in medieval Roman Catholicism. And um, I've already referred to this, you know, Saint Anne was one, there was many other saints. The most popular saint of all, actually, was Mary. And Mary was regarded, Virgin Mary, that is, in the Bible, as being free from personal sin, having remained a virgin all of her life. Um, later on, as, the, as, as doctrine has developed in, in the Catholic Church, she has come to be known as queen over all things, queen of the universe. Um, she was believed, I think this was established in 1950, the bodily assumption, she was believed to have been taken up into heaven, body and soul, upon her death. Now that was true for Jesus, right? In his resurrected body, he went to the right hand of the Father, but that's not true of anybody else. When Christians die, their bodies go in the grave, their souls go to be with Jesus. But in Mary's case, it is believed that her body and soul was taken to be with God. And so there are frequent exhortations in the Catholic Church for people to pray to Mary, to implore her to take our sins to the Father. Again, if we look at Hebrews 7, it's it's hard to understand how that can be held as true because, again, verse 25 makes very clear that there's one who makes intercession for us. That's Jesus. He always lives to make intercession for them. And the reason why is because 
all the other saints are dead. See, what the writer here is trying to say in making another contrast between Jesus and the Old Testament saints, if you look at verse 23 and 24, he says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. I mean, they could minister for a while, but then they died and their ministry was finished. But Jesus is different. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He died on the cross, but now he lives and he continues to live and he will never die again. That's why he is the one that we can appeal to as a living savior. That can't be said of any saint and it can't be said of Mary. We should honor Mary as a, a godly woman, as one who gave birth to our Savior. We should be thankful to God. There's a lot to learn from Mary, but the scriptures are clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes Mary. That's why she died. That's why she can't hear your prayers. And that's why you should not pray to her. You should not pray to Mary. Only Jesus is the one who has lived the holy life, who has died on a cross, resurrected from the dead, and is living and listening and interceding and can give you hope for life beyond the grave. So as an example of this, referring to another reformer, a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli. Uh, he was a reformer in Switzerland. Um, Luther was in Germany. It's really very interesting how Luther and Zwingli kind of were brought up at about the same time, even though they really had no connection with each other. I mean, eventually they met, but it was like God just kind of raised both these men up uh, to proclaim very similar doctrines and to be used for the purpose of the Reformation. Well, Zwingli, um, and this was at the time when there was a lot of fighting, religious fights, religious wars, even among Christians. Catholics and Protestants fought each other. I mean, a very shameful thing. So happy that that's over among Christians. But Zwingli was fighting for the Protestant army in the Battle of Kappel in 1531. Protestants were fighting the Catholics. Catholics come in, they're overtaking Zwingli and his army. Zwingli gets wounded. He's on the battlefield, he's lying there motionless. He, he can't move, can't get up, still living. And the Catholic army comes in and they stand over Zwingli's body. Not, not his body, he's still alive. They stand over Zwingli. And here's what they ask of him. They say, call out to Mary. That was what they wanted. That was so important to them. Pray to Mary before you die. And Zwingli said, no, I'm not going to do it. And the sword thrust him through, and he died. Now, the only explanation for that, a man who could have called upon Mary to save his life, but instead refused to do so, knowing that only Christ alone could usher him into the next life, fully, completely, without shame, without condemnation, and without fear. That was Zwingli's belief. That was Zwingli's comfort in death. He knew he was going to die. 
could have saved his life, but he didn't. He had confidence in the face of death because of his hope in this Jesus. Do, do you have that kind of confidence, friends? Do you have that peace? Do you know where you're going when you die? And do you know and have assurance that Christ alone can present you to the Father holy and blameless and righteous in his sight? That ought to be the hope of every Christian. It's the hope that we sing about when we sing one of our favorite songs here at New Life, In Christ Alone, No Guilt in Life, No Fear in Death. This is the power of Christ in me, in us. And so we're going to stand now and sing that song. Band, if you want to come forward, let's stand, and I'll close us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for a Savior who will never disappoint us. Thank you for a Savior who is a sufficient mediator for us. Thank you for a Savior who has overcome the grave and gives us that hope. Praise be to you, O Lord, in your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.